Well, today, March 17th, I'm sure everybody knows this, is St. Patrick's Day. And this is a holiday that's known for the rather interesting ways that people celebrate St. Patrick's Day. From shamrock shakes at McDonald's to green beer at the local pub um, to wearing something green so that no one will pinch you. There are a lot of rather interesting ways to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. I'm actually wearing orange today, which is another approach to St. Patrick's Day. You see some Protestants, me and, me and Kim this morning, some Protestants wear orange because the orange in the Irish flag represents the Protestant history of that country, whereas the green represents the Catholic tradition. So there are all kinds of interesting approaches to celebrating St. Patrick's Day. Um, and there are also all kinds of interesting legends around the namesake for this holiday, uh, St. Patrick himself. Uh, there are legends that he drove all the snakes out of Ireland, uh, that he used a three-leaf clover to teach the, the Irish pagans about the Trinity, that he had a walking stick that miraculously grew into a tree. But as one historian rightly points out, none of those legends have anything to do with the real Patrick. However, however that doesn't mean that the uh, real life of the real St. Patrick wasn't really interesting. His story is actually pretty amazing. And his story begins with a boy named Maywin Sukkot. That's actually the name that St. Patrick was born with, Maywin Sukkot. And he wasn't born in Ireland. He was actually born in Roman Britain. Uh, he grew up in what is now Scotland. And there, as a young man, he was brought up in a, a Christian family. He grew up hearing the realities of the Christian faith. However, by his own confession, uh, he never truly embraced Christianity during those early years, during those uh, formative growing up years. But then something happened in his life that changed all of that. In the year 405 AD, when Maywin was a teenager, maybe around 15 or 16 years of age, uh, Irish raiders came to his village. And those raiders attacked his community, they pillaged his home, and they took him, along with several others, as plunder. They actually made Maywin a slave. And the raiders then returned to Ireland, where they sold him to a violent Irish warrior chieftain. And much like the prodigal son, uh, Maywin found himself in a far-off country, feeding pigs while going hungry himself. However... In his suffering and in his slavery, he turned to the God of his family. Uh, he truly embraced the Christianity that he'd grown up with. Reflecting back on that time, he later recalled, I would pray constantly during the daylight hours, the love of God and the fear of him surrounding me more and more, and faith grew. Maywin surrounded to the, surrendered to the freeing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then not long after that, he found freedom from his captivity as well. Uh, through a vision, he actually found a ship which took him to Gaul, which is modern-day France. And from there, he entered into theological training and then into full-time ministry. Uh, there, that's also when he changed his name to the Christian Patricius or Patrick. It's actually a word that comes, actually it's a word that means father figure. But, but here's where uh, Patrick's story gets even more interesting. After returning home to Britain and, and ministering there, he had another vision. And he describes this vision as similar to the Apostle Paul's Macedonian call. But in this vision, it wasn't the Macedonians calling for help. It was Irishmen calling for help. 
You see, Patrick found himself called to return to the land of his captivity and to bring them the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's just what he did. He went back to Ireland. He went back to pagan, barbaric, druid-filled Ireland, and he spent his life there as a missionary. And Patrick saw great fruit from his efforts. Thousands came to salvation in Jesus Christ. New churches were planted. And the religious trajectory of that entire country was changed forever. As one historian points out, Patrick entered an Ireland full of paganism and idol worship. But just a few short decades after Patrick arrived, a healthy Christ-honoring church was thriving. The Irish church was so strong that in centuries to come, it would send missionaries to evangelize much of continental Europe. You see, St. Patrick was actually a great Christian missionary. He was a missionary. And his life is worthy of so much more than just green beer and having a shamrock shake. But, but why I share that story with you this morning is not simply to give you a history lesson on St. Patrick's Day. Instead, I share that with you because I think that in the life of St. Patrick, we find a picture of the life, really, of every Christian. In the life of St. Patrick, we find a picture, really, of the life of every Christian. Here's what I mean by that. Just like Patrick, we all have found ourselves in bondage. We've all found ourselves in bondage. For Patrick, it was literal slavery, but it was also spiritual slavery. Now, he didn't understand that when he was a young man, free in Britain. It took physical slavery to show him his spiritual bondage. But for every single one of us, we, we all find ourselves in that same spiritual bondage. We're all born. All of us are born in bondage to our sin. We're all born with a nature bent on sinning. We're all born under the guilt of our sin, facing judgment for it. And we're all born slaves under this world's sinful system. We're all born in bondage to sin. But then, just like Patrick, we've been set free. Just like Patrick, we come to know the, the liberation, liberation from our bondage. And this is the story. This is the story, brothers and sisters, of every Christian. We are all set free through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are set free through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in the finished work of Christ, we are set free from the guilt of our sin. We are set free from the enslavement to our sinful nature. We are set free from the condemnation that we deserve. And we are set free to see the folly of this world's sinful system. But then just like Patrick... We face a choice. We face a choice. In our freedom, we face a choice. You see, when Patrick found himself on that ship sailing for Gaul, the wind in his face, his bondage behind him, he had a choice. What would he do with his freedom? Would he go back to Britain and resume life as Maywin Sukkot? He was certainly free to do that, right? He could have gone back, he could have taken up life as a farmer, or or he could have boarded another ship there when he got to Gaul and seen where that ship took him. He could have done any of those things. But he didn't. Instead, from his place of freedom, he chose to love others as he had been loved and bring them the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And he even went so far as to go back to the land of his bondage in order to bring them freedom. I think that's what's so powerful about his story. From his freedom, 
he chose to return. From his freedom, he chose to serve. From his freedom, he chose to love. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we all face that same choice. We all face that same choice. That's actually what we're going to talk about this morning. What are we doing with our freedom? What are we doing with our freedom? In Christ, we have been set free. Now, what are we using that freedom for? And we see this issue raised, not simply in the life of a a missionary that we remember on March 17th, but more important for us this morning, we see this issue raised in the Word of God. We see this issue raised by the Apostle Paul in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Galatians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them this morning and turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And as we've been learning through our study of this letter, the book of Galatians is really a a manifesto on freedom. Uh, Freedom is discussed in this letter more than in any other book in the New Testament. Uh, And the discussion of freedom in this book is not just some uh, academic exercise, not just some ivory tower theological debate. The discussion of freedom in this book is actually driven by something very practical, something very necessary. You see, in the churches to whom Paul is writing this letter, freedom was under attack. Freedom was under attack. There was a a threat to Christian freedom in these churches. And that threat was coming in the form of legalism. As we've discussed in previous messages, uh, Jewish legalists were pushing their way into these churches. Uh, Jewish teachers had had come to town claiming to be Christians, but they were telling these new primarily Gentile Christians... In these churches in Galatia, they were telling them, well, faith alone and Christ alone, that's, that's not enough. They actually argue that, that resting in Christ's finished work was not enough to justify you in the sight of holy God. It wasn't enough to get you a, a place in the people of God. Instead, they taught that, that you need to add more. Faith in Christ is a good place to start, but you need to add more. They said that you needed to work a system, that you needed to add a bunch of works, a bunch of human effort, a bunch of law-keeping in order to secure your place in God's presence and among his people. They're actually telling these Christians that you have to go and live your life as under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law, keeping all the rules and regulations and customs, including circumcision. But by doing that, what they were doing is they were turning the Christian life into a life of bondage, where you had to work in order to earn your place with God instead of what it truly is, a lifestyle of grace. Lifestyle of grace, where you're free because of what you already have from God in Jesus Christ. And so in this letter, Paul really goes on a gospel attack. He shows the Galatians that this legalistic lifestyle is contrary to the message at the heart of the Christian faith. It's contrary to the gospel itself. In this letter, Paul explains how all of that Old Testament system, the laws and the rules and the regulations, it was all there to show us our inability to to humble our pride and to lead us to our only hope. And our only hope is not in us somehow doing enough to earn God's favor. That's not where our hope is found. And so our only hope is, as Paul put it back in chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption 
as sons. Our only hope is God himself. Our only hope is God and his plan to redeem us through his son. His son who perfectly kept the law for us, but then who also died sacrificially in our place. So Paul writes in chapter 2 of this letter, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Legalism is not the answer. Legalism is not the other. Faith alone in Christ alone, that is our only hope. And, And that truth, brothers and sisters, that truth is freeing. Amen? That truth is freeing. That's the reality of the Christian life. Ours is a life of freedom. We're set free from trying to work for God's favor, from trying to work for righteousness, from trying to work our way into heaven. We're set free. We don't have to work for those things because we already have all of that through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins chapter 5 by saying, look at verse 1 of chapter 5. For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't turn to an enslaving system of trying to work for it. But then, as we come to our text for this morning, which is going to be verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5, Paul picks up the same theme of freedom, however, he takes it in a little bit different direction. Notice he opens verse 13, look at it. He opens verse 13 by again talking about freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers. So this is the calling upon us as Christians. Ours, our life is one of freedom. The, go- the gospel sets us free. However, here, Paul, instead of calling his readers to stand firm in that freedom, he tells his readers, in a sense, to move. You see, they have a choice to make because of their freedom. Their freedom is giving them an opportunity to move, but they have to choose the direction. They have to choose how they will use their freedom. And Paul spells out the the choice of Christian freedom this way. Look at the rest of verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul here, he's pointing out the proverbial fork in the road. In the Christian life, there's a decision to be made. What will you do with your freedom? And this is something that was confronting the Galatians. You see, the more that they understood that Christianity is not about working a system, the more that they they grasped that we're not under law, but under grace, the more that they came to see that the Christian life is a life of freedom, freedom from condemnation and judgment, freedom from trying to work for God's approval, freedom from living under the the guilt and shame of sin, the more that they understood that the Christian life is not a life of legalism, the more that we're going to find themselves confronted with this choice of freedom. What will they do with their freedom? And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, that's the same reality that confronts every single one of us, every single one of us as Christians. We are set free in Christ. Now what? What will we do with our freedom? And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, that's a question that continues to confront us as Christians. It's not a, okay, I made that decision once and I'm good type of issue. 
It's a daily, moment-by-moment challenge. For what will you use your freedom? Which path will you choose? Which way will you move? And here, looking at the text, Paul points to two different paths. First, he talks about what I'll call the path of license. The path of license. Now, that word license, if you looked it up in a dictionary, it means this. Freedom to behave as one wishes, especially in a way that results in excessive or unacceptable behavior. Or as the Oxford English Dictionary puts it, license is a liberty of action, especially when excessive. A disregard of law and propriety. An abuse of freedom. An abuse of freedom. And license is actually the the antithesis. It's the doppelganger. It's the evil twin of legalism. Whereas legalism demands responsibility without freedom, license grants freedom without responsibility. Legalism demands responsibility without freedom, but license grants freedom without responsibility. And a lifestyle of license would have been a very easy temptation for these Galatians. They could have very easily found themselves abusing their freedom in Christ as they push away from from legalism, as they push away from that, that lifestyle of trying to work a system. Actually, this temptation towards license is something that the New Testament repeatedly, repeatedly warned against in, in its teaching on grace. Because there's this temptation, brothers and sisters, there's this temptation inherent in grace. Apostle Paul describes it this way, Romans chapter 6. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Listen. Paul asks, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Are we now just free to sin it up? That's Paul's question. And with that question, Paul is anticipating an argument that goes something like this. Since Christ has done it all, since we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone, can't we now just live however we want? Let's just go sit it up because none of it really matters. We're not under law. We're under grace. However, do you remember Paul's answer to that question there in Romans 6? What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be, he says. His answer is no way. Not at all. That's not the way any of this works. That's not the way that you live under grace. And he makes a similar point here. Paul here is warning the Galatians against choosing the path of license. Look at the text. He says, do not use your freedom that way. Don't use your freedom that way. Now, here's the thing. You can. You can use it that way. It is a very real possibility in the realm of possibilities. It's a very real possibility when it comes to how you use your freedom. You can take the path of license. But look at how Paul describes that path. He describes it at first, look at the text, as an opportunity. He says, verse 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity. Now, I really want you to understand what he's getting at with this word opportunity. And I really want you to get what he's getting at here because there's a nuance in Paul's Greek word that that we might lose with our English word opportunity. You see, the Greek word that Paul chose to use here was originally a military term. And it was used to speak of a military base of operations. 
a base of operations. It was used of that place where, where resources would be stored, from which attacks would be launched, and from which an invading army would maintain its foothold. Now, eventually the term came to be used of both a base of operations and also of a, of a set of circumstances from which other actions become possible. It came to be used to describe a, an open door for future actions, a starting place for further activities, uh, an anchor point from which to press forward. And, and this is how Paul is describing a possible approach, but a dangerous approach, but a possible approach to our Christian freedom. We can, even though he says not to, we can use it as an opportunity, as an open door for something else to advance. But the reason Paul warns against using this opportunity that way is because of what we're opening the door for. Look at the text. We're opening the door, Paul says, for what? We're opening the door for the flesh. For the flesh, do not use your freedom as an opportunity, as a base of operations, as a stronghold for future attacks, as an anchor point for pressing forward for the flesh. For the flesh. But what does that mean? What does that mean? What is the flesh? Well, <clears throat> in the New Testament, that word flesh is used quite a bit. And it's used with a, with a rather broad range of meanings. Sometimes it's used of, of literal flesh. That is the material that covers our bones and our muscles. Other times it's used of our, our human life, all of our human life here on earth. Paul uses it that way back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he said, The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul there, he's just talking about his human life. How does he go about living day in and day out? He lives by faith in the Son of God. That's the way he's using the term there. But those ways of using the term flesh, that's not the way that Paul's using the term flesh here. Here he's using it as an ethical term, an ethical term. And this is often the way that it's used in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. As New Testament scholar Timothy George explains, when used as an ethical term, the flesh, listen, the flesh refers to the fallen human nature, the center of human pride and self-willing. Or as commentator F.F. F. Bruce puts it, the flesh is that self-regarding element in the human nature which has been corrupted at the source with its appetites and propensities and which, if unchecked, produces works of the flesh. Or what's another name for works of the flesh? Sin. Sin. So the flesh is that, that anti-God part of us that is resident in each and every one of us. It's the, the enemy at our elbow. It's that rebellion still lurking in our hearts. And what? Each and every one of us was enslaved to the flesh. We were enslaved to the flesh. It's a jump we said how high. That's the way it was. The flesh was our master. It was the old man that Paul describes in Romans chapter 6. It was our life in Adam. Our, our life in living out our deadness. Our life in living out our rebellion. We were all slaves to our sinful, fallen, me-focused natures. But in Christ, in Christ, we've now been liberated from its power. We've been liberated from the power of the flesh, but not from the, the presence of it. Not yet. We will be in glory. Longing for that day, amen? We will be in glory, but not here. Here, it's still there. 
barking orders. Now, we don't have to follow those orders, praise Jesus, but it's still their barking orders. However, here in our text, Paul makes a pretty shocking point. He says that our freedom can become a way, an opportunity for the flesh to gain a foothold. You see, if we take our freedom in Christ and we decide to walk down the path of self-indulgence, if we decide to walk down the path of living any old way that we want, if we decide to walk down the path of, I'm just going to go ahead and sin because I know I'll be forgiven anyways. If we take our freedom and walk down the path of license, we're, we're in a sense setting up a base of operations for the flesh. A base of operations for the flesh. We are inviting, think about this, brothers and sisters, we are inviting our enemy to set up camp, gather supplies, dig in, and launch further attacks. Paul's saying that's a choice that you can make with your freedom, but that would be the wrong choice. That would be the wrong choice. When you stand at that proverbial fork in the road, don't choose license and self-indulgence. You're just giving the flesh a chance to dig in. You're just giving the flesh a chance to dig in. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, Paul says, take the other path. Take the path of love. The path of love. That's, that's the other choice here. Again, Paul says, look at the text. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through what? What does it say? Uh, sorry, I've lost you already. But through love, serve one another. Serve one another. Through love, serve one another. And it's really interesting the way that Paul puts this. He actually uses a word here that was attached to slavery. The word serve, serve one another. The word serve here, duleo, comes from the Greek word for slave, doulos. It's just a verbal form of the word. And it simply means, go be a slave. Go be a slave. So Paul is telling them, in your freedom, go enslave yourself to one another. Go enslave yourself to one another. But not because you have to. Not because you have to. Instead, in your freedom, go serve one another because your love compels you. Because your love compels you. You see, he's talking about being servants driven by love. Servants driven by love. And, and really, brothers and sisters, that's, often, that's, that's so different than what we often think of when we think of, of serving, of being slaves. We often think of it as this, this compulsion that forces us against our wills. We often think of slavery as this power over us, this bondage from which we want to break free. But Paul says, no, in your freedom, in our freedom, love should have us running towards serving. But why? Why? Why does love lead us to serve? Well, in order to understand that, we first need to understand how we're led to do any action. Uh, so let's take a moment and let's talk about what I'll call the anatomy of an action. The anatomy of an action. And it was the Puritans, I think, who, who probably best explained how, how the mind and the affections and the will... The mind, the affections, or the emotions, and the will all work together to produce an action. 
And, and they said that action starts in the mind. It starts in the mind. The mind embraces certain realities. The mind thinks on certain realities. It comes to certain conclusions. It believes things. It holds on to certain truths. And then those truths held tightly, they then inflame the affections. The, the affections or the emotions are, are like a fire burning on the fuel of truth. The more deeply we think, the more deeply we believe something, the more strongly we feel about it. So if you believe strongly that your life is in danger, you will feel fear. If you know with certainty that the Mariners are a horrible baseball team, you will feel apathy towards the 2019 baseball season if you're a Mariners fan. So the more strongly you think something, the more strongly you will feel it. And then through those feelings, through those inflamed affections, the will is then engaged. So it's like, picture this, like a great steam engine, right? And so when the temperature is hot enough, when the, when the pressure is strong enough, when you have enough fuel and enough fire, what happens? The wheels start moving. And the same is true of our human will. Our thoughts inflame our affections, which then engage our will. We act. And brothers and sisters, that's always the way it works. That is always the way that it works. But my point is that it's simply, my point is simply that it's a chain. We act because we believe something. We act because our beliefs produce strong feelings. And then that engages the will. And it's all linked together. It all starts in the mind. And we need to understand that chain when it comes to serving through love. So, where does it start? It starts in the mind. It starts in the mind. And our mind needs to grab a hold of certain truths. First, our mind needs to stop looking at what I need, what I deserve, what I demand. We need to stop thinking about that, and we need to start seeing the needs of other people. We need to look around us and see, guess what, brothers and sisters, there are other people in this world, right? There are other people out there. It isn't all just about me. It isn't all just about you. There are other people. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. As Christians, we have great help in seeing the needs of others. You see, the gospel itself sets us free to see the needs of other people. How does it set us free? It sets us free because we have one who has already dealt with our deepest, greatest need. Amen? A thousand years from now, we're going to realize... There is someone who has dealt with our greatest need, and we're going to praise him every day, every moment in glory, right? We were born in sin and under condemnation, and we're set free because he lived for us, and he died for us, and he rose again. And a thousand years from now, that was my greatest need. It wasn't, you know, as Danny was reminding us this morning, it's not more money in the bank account, it's not that job, it's not that house. The greatest need is salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we have one who has already addressed our greatest need. And he's also given us a future in which we are secure. We are his, his sons and his daughters. And we really ultimately have nothing to worry about. Amen? God causes how many things to work together for our good? All of them. So ultimately we really have nothing to worry about. Now, here's the thing. The flesh says that's untrue. The flesh says that's untrue. The fleshly mind says, man, there's all kinds of things 
for you to worry about. But here's the thing, the fleshly mind is not on your side. The fleshly mind is not on your side and is not something that we should trust and we'll, we'll see more of why in a few moments. But serving through love, it starts in the mind. It starts with seeing the needs of other people and recognizing our security through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, and then as we grasp that security tightly and, and we clearly see the needs of others, we take time and look and see the needs of others and contemplate the needs of others. As we see those things and hold on to them tightly, guess what happens? Our affections are aflamed. We feel both gratitude because of what's been given us and we feel empathy, empathy for those who are in need. We put ourselves in the shoes of others and we feel their need. See, this is why we struggle with love so much, right? We don't see the needs of others. We don't contemplate the needs of others. And we never get moved to empathy. Because what are we worried about? We're thinking about us. And I don't have. And so I get this fear. And I focus on me. Instead of seeing the needs of others and being moved to, to empathy. Put ourselves in other's shoes and feel their needs. And sometimes those are small needs. We feel empathy for someone because we see that they need just a bit more time or, or they need a little bit of help in life. And, and, and we know that feeling, right? We know that feeling. It resonates with us. We feel empathy for them. But other times those needs are a lot bigger. Take the life of St. Patrick. He knew what it was like. He knew what it was like to live in hopelessness and in bondage. And he also knew the liberating power of the gospel. And that knowledge, brothers and sisters, that inflamed his affections for the Irish people. People who at one time had been his enemy. People who had actually enslaved him. But, but God gave him a love for them because he saw and he empathized with their needs. And those truth-inflamed affections moved his will to action. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us. If we are going to be people who from our freedom truly turn and serve one another, we need to fill our minds with truth. We need to see the needs of others around us. We remember, need to remember how God has met our needs. And then we need to let that truth, that spirit-empowered truth, inflame our affections, filling our hearts with both gratitude and empathy. And from that place, we will find ourselves compelled <laughs> to serve others, compelled to serve others. It won't be drudgery. It won't be bondage. Instead, it will be loving, joyful service as we use our freedom in Christ as an avenue to help others instead of squandering it, making it a foothold for the flesh. See how this works? Brothers and sisters, are you seeing how this works? It's a choice. It's a choice we all, every Christian, we make multiple times a day. You probably already made it multiple times this morning. It's a choice. Which way are you going to go? Set up base operations for the flesh? <laughs> or let right thinking fuel your affections, engage your will to serve through love. Here Paul is showing us the choice. He's showing us this proverbial folk fork in the road of freedom. But here he also, praise Jesus for this, he shows us where these two different paths, where they end. 
where they end. You see, he doesn't just point out the choice of Christian freedom. He also impacts what I'll call the destinations, plural, the destinations of Christian freedom. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. The destinations of Christian freedom. Look at the text. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And brothers and sisters, that's describing two very different destinations. Two very different destinations. And first, Paul explains that the path of love, it leads to holiness. It leads to holiness. Now, now this is fascinating. This is fascinating how Paul does this. He takes the issue that these legalists, these Jewish legalists, were all dug in on keeping the law. And he says, well, if you're really worried about that, if you aim at serving through love, you get it all. (laughs) You hit it all. He says, if you're worried about living a holy life, then love is what you should be pursuing. He tells them the entire law, the entire thing is fulfilled in this one idea. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here... Paul is quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, but he's actually following the pattern of what Jesus did with that text from Leviticus 19. Remember, Jesus identified this as the second great commandment. Let me remind you of the scene. In the Gospels, we read that an expert in the law came to Jesus in order to test him. And he asked Jesus this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which one is the most important? Remember this? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But then Jesus added this. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And what Paul is saying here is the same thing. It's all summarized in this. Love. Love. How do you approach God? How do you approach one another? If you want to live a holy life, it better look like love. Love. And not Hollywood's lust masquerading as love. Not Hallmark's sentimentalism masquerading as love. It should look like biblical love. Full person devotion for the good and glory of another. Full person devotion for the good and glory of another. Here's an important question. Why does it work that way? Why, why love? I mean, there are a lot of commandments. Go read the Old Testament, right? There are a lot of commandments. Why can they all be summed up, all fulfilled this way? Why love? Well, let me answer that question by walking you through what's at the heart of the law. What is at the heart of the law? Well, the law of God is not just a a bunch, a collection of random rules and regulations. It's not just a bunch of random rules and regulations. God wasn't just sitting up there in heaven thinking, well, you know, I need to put something on those stone tablets. What should I do? Well, I'll put something there about taking a day off once a week and, you know, not checking out another guy's wife. Okay, there we go. That's not how it happened. That's not how it happened. Instead, brothers and sisters, listen to this. At the heart of the law, at the heart of the law, is the revelation of a person. At the heart of the law is the revelation of a person, and that person is God himself. 
You see, the law, the law reveals the, the goodness, the kindness, the faithfulness, and the beauty of God himself. So when the law says you shall not commit adultery, it's because God is always faithful to his beloved. When the law says you shall not steal, it's because God is always generous. When the law says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, it's because God himself always speaks the truth. And when the law says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, it's because God himself rested, delighting himself in his creation. See, the entire law is about revealing a person. It's actually, brothers and sisters, actually about taking the character of that person and applying it to the everyday realities of life. Taking the character of that person and applying it to the everyday realities of life. So the reason that Jesus and Paul can say, That the whole law is summed up and you shall love your neighbor as yourself is because that's the way of our God. That's the way of our God. He is a God of self-sacrificial serving love. And those who follow that path, those who through freedom pursue love, they find themselves displaying his character. Displaying his character. They find themselves living a holy life. They end up treating their spouse, their children, their friends, their enemies, their coworkers, their fellow church members, and anyone else that they meet, they end up treating them the way that God treats us, the way that God treats us. They end up applying the character of God to the realities of their life. And again, that's really what the law is all about. It's the character of God applied to the everyday realities of life. And brothers and sisters, that's why it also exposes our inability and our sinfulness. We, in our natural state, do not live out the character of God. Instead, we rebel against the character of God. But liberated through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can start to manifest the character of God. We begin, can begin to live as the sons and daughters of God, set free by grace. We can now choose to act this way, act in love. And so as we do, Paul says that that path, it leads to a holy life. It leads to a holy life. But should we choose the other path, Paul warns us. He warns us that the path of license leads to ruin. It leads to ruin. It actually is suicidal, okay? The path of license is suicidal. Again, look at how he puts this. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not, what? Consumed by one another. Paul is telling us here that that the path of me is a path of folly. The path of me, making life all about me, is a path of folly. You see, when in our freedom, we choose to use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, we let that me-centered that belief in life, that me-centered bent, we let that, that fleshly bent dig in and set up a base of operations. He's telling us that you're playing a dangerous game if you make that choice. When we make our marriages or our families or our friendships or our career or our church involvement all about us, when we treat, treat it like the world's just revolving around us, here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we are approaching life like we're just a bunch of consumers. Like we're just a bunch of consumers. And what do consumers do, brothers and sisters? What do consumers do? They take. 
They take. They don't serve. They don't give. They don't love. Except for themselves. But they are not like God. They're not giving. They're not generous. Instead, they just take. But here's an important question for all of us this morning. If we all become takers, where does that end? How does that end? If we all become takers, how does that end? If we all approach our relationships, if we all approach our everyday interactions, if we all approach life in this world as a bunch of takers, if we all use our freedom as an avenue to consume, where does that lead? Paul says here, it leads to a feeding frenzy. It leads to a suicidal feeding frenzy. Look at the text. Notice this progression here. Bite, devour, consume. It starts with taking, brothers and sisters. It starts with taking. We bite. We bite. Take a bite here. Take a bite there. Take a bite over here. Those around us become something that we feed on. We take from them, simply using them to satisfy our appetites. But you, you, you should know this, brothers and sisters. I hope you do. One bite is never enough. Amen? One bite is never enough. That's not the way the flesh ever works. Fleshly appetites just keep growing. And so one bite leads to two. And two leads to three. And three becomes a habit. We end up habitually devouring one another. Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another. And the word that he uses here, it means to eat up ravenously. That's like a wild beast with fresh kill. Or like some of us with a freshly opened bag of chips. You know? You start with one, right? Right, Jake? And you just can't stop. We keep eating. But then what happens? We ravenously hit the bottom of the bag. And what's there? <laughs> They're all gone. And that's where this leads. It leads to emptiness. Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And the word that he uses there, this translated as consumed, it means to do away with completely. To destroy. You see, that's part Paul says this ends. A path that ends in nothingness. It ends in emptiness. It ends in destruction. When we all approach life like a bunch of me-centered, flesh-driven, freedom-abusing consumers, we end up consuming one another and consumed by one another. And you see this, right? You know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know. You see this. You look around. You see this. You see, watch people approach life this way. In their families, in their marriages, on the job site, in their church, in their world. In our world. When we make it all about us, when all we do is take, we end up with nothing left. We end up with nothing left. See, Paul's telling us here that there are choices, and those choices have consequences. Those choices have consequences. As a Christian, in Christ, you've been set free. Your life, it's not anymore about trying to earn your way to heaven or trying to atone for your sins or trying to do enough good things that way you're bad. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are saved by grace. It's a gift. It's all a gift. 
You're, it's a gift. And, and now you are a child of the living God. You are living in, in the freedom of forgiveness. Past, present, future. All your sins forgiven. But what will you do with that freedom? Brothers and sisters, what will you do with that freedom? What choice are you going to make? What choice are you going to continue to make? How will you use your freedom? Paul gives you a powerful warning here. He says if you use it as a path of license, if you turn that freedom into an avenue to live any old way that you want, if you use life, use that freedom to make life all about you, if you argue, let's go sin it up because we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. Paul's saying there are consequences to that choice. And it's not going to lead you to the life that you want. Instead, it's going to create a foothold for the flesh. And it sets you on a destructive, suicidal path. But praise God, Paul shows us another way. Amen? Praise God, he shows us another way. He shows us the beautiful path of love. And it's a beautiful path because... This path of love, it looks like the children of God looking like the children of God. It looks like the children of God looking like the children of God. It's a beautiful path because it looks like the people of Christ embracing the freedom of Christ to love others like Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, that's the way we need to head. And, and brothers and sisters, we actually see that beautiful path in what we're celebrating today. Right? Today, St. Patrick's Day. We remember a man who, freed by Christ, used that freedom to serve an entire country, loving them all with the truth of the gospel. And all these years later, that was in the 400s, and all these years later, we can look back on that and see the beautiful legacy of that choice. We can see the beautiful legacy of that man's life. But here's the thing. His legacy was only made beautiful because of the life of another that we get to celebrate today. The greatest example of love serving freely is what we're going to celebrate as we close our service around the Lord's table. This, when we celebrate the Lord's table, this is the love that set us free. And it set us free, brothers, as you know this, but I'm going to remind you, it set us free because our Lord Jesus was not a consumer. Right? He was not a consumer. His life wasn't about using others. And said his life was lived, the whole thing, for you and for me. So that we could all know the joy of freedom. And then in that freedom, choose to live a life that shows others the love that we've found in Christ. We have a choice, brothers and sisters. We have a choice. What will you, what will you do with your freedom?